Great. Well, today on Coastal Front, I am excited to host Vancouver City Councilor Melissa DiGenova into our studio today. Melissa began her career of park service at the Vancouver Park Board as a commissioner there in 2011. It was a position she held until her ambition saw her run for city council in 2014, where she won her first term. And I should note, because I did my research on this, that you were the only person to win that wasn't an incumbent. I've got that right? Yes, that's true. Of course, we know that uh, preceding that, there was another election in 2018, which obviously Melissa won again. And with an election slated for 2022, we'll be keeping our eyes on you, Melissa, as you probably run for a third term. By adding a millennial voice to council, Melissa has brought several motions forward to uh, better the city of Vancouver. And some of these include affirming the city's willingness to work with other levels of government law enforcement concerning money laundering linked to unlicensed businesses in Vancouver, concerns regarding short-term rentals in the city, and support for the Kettle Society to expand resources related to mental health, ending homelessness, and supportive housing. Outside of the public eye, Melissa is a wife and proud mother of a young child. I really appreciate being on the show today, Melissa. So thanks for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. So for the listeners, uh, we're going to talk about three topics that we've discussed ahead of time, because we know this is important to a lot of our listeners. One of them is going to be about core city functions and particularly around development, real estate development, and why it's such a problem in Vancouver. It's been a bit of a, a hot topic recently. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the property tax increase that happened in this latest budget. And uh, and being we have time, we're going to talk about young people in politics, about park board, upcoming election, police board, uh, etc. But well, these are going to be our main topics. So um, to start, let's get right into this about core city functions. There was a tweet that you published on March 31st, quite recently, and it was titled, democracy dies in the city of Vancouver tonight. Can you fill us in on what that meant? Well, I I was really fired up. I, I, I'm very passionate about uh, civic issues. And I think you have to be to do this job because you're not, you're not uh, ever just dipping your toe in. It's you're either you're in or you're out. Our council meetings are long. Uh, it requires a lot of us. And I have to say, you know, regardless of, of where everyone is on the political spectrum i have respect for every single council member they dedicate a lot of their time and their families give a lot of them and i know that just from my own experience but we were elected to do a job and that job was to make decisions for the people who put us in these seats and you know the ballot was so long last time uh my at the time toddler ripped it up and i needed a second one there were so many names but i'm very honored to be representing vancouver as a vancouver city councillor and i never forget that and one of my fiduciary responsibilities is to consider how to direct our staff and I'm sure you've heard this uh, in the media. There's been some some question, you know, and, and I think in the communities, there's been some question. Who's running who? Is it council directing our staff or is it staff directing council? So when it comes down to looking at a motion that was brought forward by my colleagues, I thought it supplemented something that I brought forward a council. The very first thing I did this term was bring a motion on development, building and licensing. And how do we expedite that? And this is the world I come from because you had mentioned I'm a mom and I am and a wife, but I also work in non-market housing and have an, an 
experience in real estate development, and I've been on the other side of that counter. So I know what it's like for those timelines. Time is money, not just the developers, to the market, mm -hmm. to the people purchasing this housing or renting this housing. So if we're really going to get real about making Vancouver more affordable, we as a council need to take the reins and make these hard decisions. They're not easy decisions. So when I said democracy dies in the city of Vancouver, what I really meant there was um, it was unintended from my council colleagues, Councillor Dominato and Councillor Kirby Young, uh, but another councillor put forward an amendment that there would be a moratorium on any motions, which means any direction from us as a council. No council member could bring a motion forward in the next 16 months uh, that S had to 16 do months? 16 months for development, building and licensing. Well, that's 16 visa payments for me, but that for, you know, for, the development community, that means for the next 16 months, no matter how bad the issue is that I hear, I now can't bring something forward to council. So I spoke vehemently against this. And uh, that that tweet was, was a result of the vote where I voted against it. I warned my colleagues. I spoke in debate uh, about, you know, the consequences and the unintended consequences of this. I really see this as you know, if we can't trust ourselves to make good decisions, I mean, if we're putting a moratorium on our own motions here, then I think the councillors who did vote for that have to ask themselves if they really feel that they should have those responsibilities. Because by voting for that motion, they chose not to want those responsibilities. So I almost see that as passing the It's a really good buck. point. It's passing the buck, really. Yeah, wow. And as you can see, I get so, a bit fired up about it. Well, I want you to be, and that's really that's a really good point. So, that, so since most of our listeners are not super plugged into politics, especially municipal politics, may not understand all the nuances around motions and these types of things, just to make sure I got this in like real layman's terms. You guys had a council meeting. Someone put together, put forward a motion, which is like a, a, a kind of a, a decision on, that you're going to vote on, which basically said, city council and mayor can no longer bring any new kind of agendas when it respects with, with respect to the topic of real estate development to council for the next 16 months or building or licensing so that's small business licenses so, so there's no innovation that's going to go on in the city i mean maybe staff might but as far as council there's no creativeness there's no you know if there if there's if something big happens in six months that causes our world to turn upside down. And we know what that feels like. We've been in the middle of COVID right now. No one can make any motions until like the summer of next year. Yep. And that counselor who brought Have this, you ever heard of this before? I mean, I've seen moratoriums before, but moratoriums on certain things, like moratoriums on development in a certain neighborhood because we're mm -hmm. waiting for a city plan, not moratoriums on counselors because we shouldn't be able to make decisions for 16 months. We didn't. That doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't. If you had to put yourself in the shoes of one of your city council, because it did pass. Most people voted in favor of this, right? Have I got that right? Yep, it okay. passed. So if you had to put yourself in the shoes of what, like, what would one of those, what would one of your counterparts say, what would their argument be, even though you don't agree with it, what would their argument be as to why this was a good idea? Well, we don't have enough staff to carry out the work that council has already put forward. 
And my argument was the very first thing I brought to this council, and fair enough, there were only two of us who were reelected and stood for office and were reelected. So we had a fairly new council. But, you know, Councillor Adrian Carr and I had been there last term. She was there even longer than me. Uh, but I came to council ready with my very first motion that we look at ways to expedite this. So our staff had already brought us back a report saying we're swimming through Melissa's motion. And it becomes all of council's policy, really. Right. So motion's really, uh, you know, a fancy word for policy or rules. So okay. these are the rules. And we sent staff, we gave them direction to go out there and take a look okay. at, at ways that they could cut red tape. And that's really how I see it. How do we cut red tape? Maybe we should go across the water, the city of North Vancouver. They're a great example of, you know, how you can turn things around in a short amount of time, you know, with a smaller budget and a smaller department. I get it. We're the city of Vancouver. But maybe then what we need to look at is, um, okay, what departments do we have staff in? And, you know, I'm sensitive to this. I'm not saying those issues shouldn't get funded, but maybe it's not a municipal issue. Right. Maybe we should be asking the provincial or federal governments to fund those issues. And we instead should stay in our lane and uh, look at maybe expanding development, building, and licensing. And to the councillor that moved the motion, I spoke to this. I said, I looked it up and I said, the last motion that councillor moved two weeks ago was to give cannabis dispensaries a break on their licensing fees. Now, fair enough, I voted for that motion, but if she thinks that that's the last important motion she'll have that has to do with zoning and development and building permits, with licensing, and that department also oversees empty homes tax. It oversees uh, cannabis licensing. It oversees uh, building and permits and small business. So if we hear from a small business owner who can't get a, a license from the city or something's backlogged or lost in translation, we can't formally put forward a motion. I see it tying our own hands. And why would yeah, we do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, if I think to myself, if, if you're... If you're expecting the world to change, to change dramatic, dramatically, profound change, which is likely going to happen in the next six months as this un pandemic unfolds, and there's going to be some things that have got to come up. I got to imagine. This is how I see it. If I put forward a motion and all of council didn't feel it was a good idea, which has happened before, yeah. then they should vote it down. Right. But they shouldn't say, you know, and this is where democracy comes into it. Right. I mean, I now can't bring forward a motion. It would be called out of order because this policy passed. That doesn't make any sense. So if we don't trust ourselves, how yeah. can we expect the people of Vancouver to trust us? Yeah, well, I buy into it. So let's, let's spend a little bit more time on this um, world of development and what this tweet that you wrote, Democracy Dies in the City of Vancouver Tonight, was around development. Now, I, I want to let you know that I, I did reach out to a number of fairly senior real estate developers in the city, people who, I won't name names, but people who are real movers and shakers in this city, people who put up big projects, medium-sized projects, but these are not like single-family home de developers. And I told them that you were coming in, and I told them that I'm having some other people. I had Ken Simmons yesterday, I've got some other city councilors coming in. And I want to talk about this topic because from what I can observe, Melissa, there's a real disconnect between um, city council and, and and the city of Vancouver, or just the system of city of Vancouver. I don't, I don't know if it's council staff, what it is, and the development community. And there's a, there's a real disconnect with what needs to happen in order to get real estate developments done. 
to the point where a number of these developers told me they live in Vancouver, they have a home here, they pay property taxes, they used to develop in the city, and now they develop in North Vancouver. You mentioned North Vancouver earlier. They develop in North Vancouver, develop uh, projects in Burnaby. They develop projects in Edmonton and Calgary. And they the said, U.S. Sure. So one of the comments I got was, I can develop a project in Edmonton at half the amount of time as I can in Vancouver. The municipality is effectively the same size of population. Bigger space in Edmonton, but as far as population size, it's the same. Uh, if you look at Vancouver proper versus Edmonton for the entire system. Can you maybe start by highlighting what you think some of the biggest problems are? Is, and your family has a real estate development background, I believe. A real estate background. Real estate marketing. Marketing, okay. And uh, so it's there's not like realtors you don't know in my family. Okay. So but I, I, I actually worked in real estate development in the private sector. And then I now still uh, work on contract with a nonprofit to acquire real estate. And I'm very careful about conflict of interest. It's one of the reasons I got a legal opinion when I first came on to counsel. And when... Ever I'm in a conflict, I, I uh, recuse myself from counsel. Um, but I, I wanted to make sure that my voice was there at the table because I was looking around, and it wasn't about being a millennial, and I know we'll get to that later, but it was looking around at counsel and saying, none of you have actually worked in this industry. Right, you don't bingo. know what it's like to be on yes. the other side of the counter. So oh. I do. Okay, so let's get into that. So in your view... What are some of the biggest problems that uh, you think developers have or what the problems that they're facing that aren't getting projects done in Vancouver in a timely fashion and they're going over to North Van and Burnaby and Richmond instead? Well, I mean, red tape. I mean, if you can get through it, if you can see past it. And I think that there's a lot of what we have to consider is why why is something there and when i ask a question like why are we doing this and i'm not singling out any one staff member i think it's more of looking at the governance and i see this is my problem this is something that i have been elected to fix so when i ask why do we do it that way and i hear that's how we've always done it that's not good enough for me. And one of the ongoing kind of back and forth I had recently with our former director of planning, um, Gil Kelly, and it became kind of a joke on the floor of council, is I said I would pull up the, you know, it's pretty easy for me to pull up the schedule of fees. I know where it is. I have it bookmarked on my computer. And I said, so in the city of North Vancouver to stamp the paperwork for an airspace parcel, you know, easement, we're talking $3,000 at the city of Vancouver. It's $81,000 just to stamp the paperwork. So I asked how many staff were holding this gold-plated stamp. And then, you know, they told me what a deal you get if you're a nonprofit. And I knew. I knew the number without looking at the document, $42,600. But still, that's $42,600. Some of my colleagues, they say, developers, it's like a bad word, a dirty word, the D word, developers. Yeah, right. But developers... I mean, they have a bottom line and a pro forma to hit, but also any savings they have, that savings is technically passed on to the market. Our staff see their pro formas. It's like, okay, you have to show us. So we know the profit margin they're making. So why would we want to put the costs up? Because the end result 
is it's going to cost more money for people who are seeking affordable housing and elected us to do something about it. And that's really my bottom line. Yeah. And that's what I've been trying to do. And I was really proud of the short program. And it's maybe the so only acronym. tell us acronym. about that. What is the short? The short program. S-H-O-R-T? Yes. Okay, it's the only that? acronym that makes sense, I think. <laughs> you know, we have MERP and we have a number of others. Yeah. And not that they're bad, but short stands for social housing or rental tenure. And what it promises you, and it's been really successful, and I've made a point of, because I moved forward motions, it said, okay, let's do a race to the bottom. The developers who can bring us the most affordable projects and have a nonprofit partner, uh, or they're looking at, you know, doing with BC Housing a certain amount of affordability or layering it in there, let's give them their permits first and see if this makes a difference. Sure. So we have a program. When did that start? So that started back in 2017. I put forward motions, but it became a permanent program this term. And I'm really proud of it. And it was something that, uh, you know, not only did development and planning work on, but DBL. Uh, so development, business, and licensing, the department I'm not allowed to put forward any motions for. <laughs> um, but Kate Krishna, who went on to be the deputy minister uh, at BC Housing and to Selena Robinson, uh, she came forward and said, you know, Councillor DiGenova, this is what we've done with your motions. And I was really proud because it promised developers 38-week process with a 12-week DP. And then hopefully, I was hearing from them that they were not only sleeping better at night, but that they would be able to return more affordability to the market. And that made me feel good because that's really why I ran for office was I didn't think that I'd be able to live here much longer in a city that was so unaffordable. Most of my friends have moved away. If I have to go and visit them in Chilliwack, I mean, we're in a pandemic now, so it's all Zoom. Yeah. But I also really want my daughter to be able to live here one day. And if I can't do something about that, then why am I why am I elected as a city councilor? Why am I pursuing this? I can tell you that I, I don't often divide the hours I work by what I make. And it's not about that. I'm not complaining, but I really do. Uh, when I'm in, I'm all in. And I'm right. all in as a city councilor to trying to make this uh, this better, as I'm sure all of us are. But I see this as something we really need to work on. And what's the customer service like? I mean, we're the city of Vancouver. We shouldn't be sitting here saying, what is it that you, the developer, can do for us? It's how can we work together to meet this common goal to deliver this affordable housing right. in the city of Vancouver? And that's one of the other reasons that I put forward. I've had to do 13 motions on it, but it became a program. BC Housing, I heard from top executives of BC Housing that they actually took my work. And I'm really proud of this. This might be the single uh, most important thing that We'll see if it, what it develops into, but affordable home ownership. Okay. You know, there's people who say, oh, Melissa, I can't even afford to rent in the city of Vancouver. How will I ever afford this? And I worked with our housing. I mean, we had a chief housing officer. Uh, he, he was short-lived at the city of Vancouver, and then his position kind of was rolled into another portfolio. And we don't really have one person dedicated to that now. But he said, uh, let's work on this together. So... All of council unanimously passed my motion. That was a vision council. It was really tense. Uh, 2015, I was in opposition, but I was really proud of that. And I moved that forward because the idea is, is when you create affordability, affordable home ownership, those people who perhaps are overhoused and could afford to own if they had a down payment, you free up room in that rental market as sure. well. So across the board, um, and so, BC Housing So what was the program in particular? You said it's- Affordable home ownership program. How, how did it work? Like what was the concept behind it? Or does it, and does it exist today? Uh, 
so it does exist today. What we found out after our staff passed all of this and did all of this was we needed a charter change. And oh. maybe we, you know, we had a mayor who wasn't so complimentary to Premier Clark at the time, and I wasn't going to see this happen. But I worked with BC Housing, actually, Councillor Carr and I, yeah. who weren't in government. Uh, you know, and, and like we were in opposition. She yeah. was a Green. But what was, I was the NPA. Well, we went to Minister Rich Coleman at BC Housing and yeah. we, you know, uh, she had her time to talk about her issues. None of the government showed up. I talked about my issues and my concept was this. We need to help people who don't have the ability and don't want to take the risk to borrow a down payment, but would share equity in their investment, knowing that the market is going up. So that equity, once, you know, maybe it's someone who wants a one bedroom and later on in life, that's not going to work for them. So they sell and the equity is shared with the province and it comes back and it sits in the municipality that that affordable home ownership unit mm -hmm. was invested in. So it really was a win-win-win, a win for the province, a win for the first time home buyer, a win for the municipality. And they developed an excellent program that I can't take credit for because their staff went above and beyond even what I looked at. And now BC Housing, if you're eligible, they will lend you your second mortgage, and by that I mean they'll lend you the down payment yeah. at a very low interest rate, and you share in the equity of that home. So, you know, you look at some of the other housing models, you buy in and you come out with what you put in, but you're never allowed to participate in the market. So you're cut off at the knees yeah. because really when you sell, you're years down the road and you, you don't get that lift that everybody else did. Yeah. This program, I would call it like the Bitcoin of looking at how we share equity and, and doing things differently, but also allowing pe real people to purchase into homes. And we see this happening in Coquitlam right now, yeah. city of North Van right now, all over the province. Vancouver has two units, two, two units, yeah. two homes, but we will be doing more. And that's what I hear from our okay. staff. Well, that's, that's really neat. Now, Melissa, it's very obvious to me that you understand this space well. What would you say without throwing all these any, all or any of these other people under the bus with respect to your rest of your city council, how much do they get real estate development? I mean, you got somebody like Jean Swanson. Is she a big fan of real estate development? I mean, I'm not going to speak specifically about one particular yeah. counselor because I think sometimes there's, there's unintended consequences. And by yeah. that, I mean, you know, I have a lot of empathy for people who come out and talk to us about, I don't want development in my community, you know, also called nimbyism, not in my backyard. Yeah. But I've asked these people questions. Well, where are your kids gonna live? You, you mentioned you have kids in your presentation, so fair game if it's all right if I ask you, where are they gonna live? Well, you know, they can find a basement suite. Well, do you think your kids are gonna wanna live in a basement suite with their families? Right. Like, you know. <laughs> Might work when you're 19 or 20, but. Exactly. Yeah. So I think we have to look at, you know, fair enough, not everyone's going to have a single family detached home with a yard. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, millennials and, you know, as we look sort of towards the future, my daughter, the generation she's in is called Generation Alpha. We're at the beginning yeah. of the alphabet all over again. They don't want to drive. They, you know, think about things differently. They don't want what we want, but they still want a home. Mm -hmm. And maybe they want to own that home one day. So, but going when, back to the city council, don't name any names. Do you, do you feel like the city council is equipped to deal with the problems? It sounds like maybe maybe this motion that was passed by so many people to put a moratorium on any new motions for real estate development or anything related to that 
was a way for them to be able to go, we don't have to deal with this problem for the next 16 months. Well, there's that, a fair that statement? I, well, I think that that's a very fair statement. That's where I said, you know, to say, I can't trust myself. I better take the responsibility away from myself and give it to someone else, even though the voters put me in, in this chair to lead. I'm just going to say I'm not allowed to do it because we passed him, you know, yeah. this policy and we made this rule against ourselves. I see that as passing the buck. But back to my colleagues, yeah. you know, I think there's some unintended consequences. And I look at like, for instance, I have a lot of compassion for the hospice on Granville Street. But you may have heard it was like very controversial public hearing. But there were some townhomes and the developer had gone above and beyond. They said, we're going to give you privacy. We're going to give you space. We're going to have a playground that you can access and have some private time at, you know, because there are families that visit the hospice and and the there were all these counselors that said, no, I want you to build this and this and this. And I had to remind them, not only are we in a quasi-judicial body here where we have to like, we have to act like judges and view what's in front of us. We don't get to tell them what to build on their land. That's their land. How would you like it if I came to your house and told you what color you had to paint it? And the result of it, some of the people on council who claim to want to help, you know, the most, uh, I, I would say impoverished people in our city, instead by voting down these more affordable townhouses, by default, not approving that project allowed a 31,000 square foot home to be built on Granville Street. Right. So I, I think, you know, we really have to look at the unintended consequences here. Is that what we were going for? No. And they said, but we can put conditions on it. No, you can't. The zoning is the zoning unless you change it to this. Right. So I understand that. I think sometimes they lose the plot a little bit. Not all of them, but some of them at different times. And that being said, they have expertise in areas that I don't. But mm -hmm. I really see this as something that I've worked in. Yeah. I understand. And, you know, it's in my wheelhouse. People have entrusted me with this, and I know what it's like to go to sleep at night worried about a pro forma for a project and if you're going to make it work or not. Good answer. I'm going to carry on on this topic, if you don't mind. Of course. You're, you're rolling, and I got more. I have more questions. Um, we talked to one of the developers who's got a project, and to make sure I don't highlight who they are, it's, I'll just call it the, um, the, the Canby Corridor, okay? It's a real estate project for uh, rental only. They submitted the project in June of last year, June of 2020, and it is April of 2021st. They're still waiting for comments back from the city, okay? And this is a very prominent developer. This is not somebody who doesn't know how to navigate the bureaucracy and red tape of the city. Do you think this is a problem that's not just in council, but also a staff problem? Well, I have to say, and, and here's where we're looking up. It's not all bad news. I don't want to fear monger. I'm really impressed with Teresa O'Donnell. She is our acting uh, director of planning. And then she, she was just announced that. She came in as a deputy from Texas. She also held, she's such a modest person, but she held all of these other positions in Las Vegas. And she's been able to do some, like what she's been able to do at lightning speed I'm impressed to see what she'll continue to do. Okay. Again, she's in the acting position and council does appoint 
the Director of Development. Uh, but I'm really impressed with Teresa O'Donnell. So I, I'd say to your listeners, especially those who might not sleep so well tonight because they're waiting for comments to come back, and let me guess, when they get them, the city will want the changes and revisions back the next day, right. even though they've been waiting for, you know, for yes, a year. Yes, hurry up and wait model. Exactly. But I think that there is some change we'll see. Unfortunately, we we lost our head of development, building and licensing right after this um, moratorium came in on council motions. Do you think um, those are related? I'm not sure if it is, but you know, mm. Jesse Adcock have a lot of respect for her, definitely brought our system online. But I'd actually like to see, and again, I can't do a motion on this, so I'll tell you about it. Yeah. I tell you what I'd like to see. I'd like to see Teresa O'Donnell, who is in planning and development. Um, I mean, there's a whole other department that's development and permits. So if you're if you're if your uh, application gets approved, you have to go over this other department to get your permits. I'd like to see it back under one umbrella. I know we've gone back and forth with should they be two separate departments or one, but if you don't streamline things, you can't expect to fast track them. Mm -hmm. And that's my concern. So I will be asking a question since I can't give any direction on that as to whether or not now that we have seen a change in leadership and a departure from the city of Vancouver in development, building, and licensing whether or not the expert, who I see as our director of planning and our acting director, Teresa O'Donnell, if she thinks that this is something that should come into her wheelhouse. Okay, okay. Um, there's a, um, when you're doing a real estate development in most municipalities, there's a, uh, a thing called a CAC. It's a community- Amenity uh, contribution. Amenity contribution. And so maybe first of all, can you just explain for the listeners that aren't familiar with that, what this is? Well, the community amenity contribution, and recently the rules have just been updated and changed a little bit, but they're provincial. They're set by the province, so the city can't set them. And what it is, is when the developer uh, builds a project and it's outside of the zoning that they currently have on site, they have to go for a rezoning. It's, for example, I'll just talk about sort of adding density to a neighborhood. Okay, you're adding all these people to this neighborhood. What improvements and upgrades are you providing for all of the residents of these of this neighborhood, including all of the new people that will be living at this project? Like for instance, things that come up are, is there adequate parking? Um, is there contributions of public art? I mean, you're creating housing. That's now considered a contribution as well. Affordable housing is a contribution. But for years, and this was one of the complaints I heard from real estate developers, and I actually pulled out a sheet. I wish I'd brought it with me today, but I think it was back in 2015, 2016, we had CAC contributions. And there were two projects across the street from each other. We were bumping the floor space ratio, the FSR, so the amount of density up equally. But we took $25 million from one developer and $50 million from another. So how, how do we come up with these numbers? And the province says these are voluntary contributions. I didn't get the sense from a lot of developers <laughs> that they were allowed to say no. Right. So I think maybe we They're need to, to redefine. No, the, the project just never gets approved. Yeah, so I, I think so, it's Melissa, important. So you've just yeah. highlighted one of the big complaints that I've heard from these from these real estate developers is that the uh, CAC decisions of are like the no, first of all, it's, as I understand it, it's a negotiation. Another one of the developers I spoke with has a massive project downtown Vancouver here. They're nine months in on their negotiation over the CAC. 
This is going to be a huge project. You mean their voluntary contribution? Their voluntary contribution. They've been talking about it for nine, nine months. Nine right? months they're negotiating to volunteer something. And 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 so you brought up a really interesting point about two projects, for all intents and purposes, identical projects across the street from each other. One pace, you said it was twenty five million? Yes, it was and, downtown. It was quite large. We don't yeah. see the contributions that big everywhere, yeah. but yeah. Twenty five million by one and 50. fifty million by the other. And this was the complaint I got was that when they go to North Vancouver or they go to Burnaby, there's a schedule. And it's like, it's like you want to build this type of housing at, and this many, this much density, here's what you're going to pay or here's what you have to provide or volunteer to provide. But in Vancouver, what I've been told is it's completely arbitrary. And so it's a maddening exercise. And of course, if you are a business person as I am, and I know you and your family have been for years and you, you understand this is like you got to write this into a model because there's a huge amount of capital being put up front and all the risk is on the developer okay like as much as people want to demonize these developers and i look i don't i know these people but they're not my they're not my clients i don't make money from them there's no i don't have any i don't have any alternative mode i'm not a developer myself i'd like to but i wouldn't get in this game right now because it's way too risky and that's what they've said they said we got to write all this stuff in and it's gotten to the point going back to my earlier comment which is these developers are just not even developing in Vancouver anymore. The small and medium-sized ones are said, forget it. We'll leave this to the big institutions. That's what also I've been told, is that it's the insurance companies and the pension funds who are the only ones that are really doing major developments now, not because they're not the only ones that can afford it. There's some others that can afford it, but they can afford it in context of like a, a two or three or four year timeline, timeline, not a six to nine year turnaround time because it takes so long. So going back to the CIC, what do you think the city would need to do in that context? Should they just have a schedule like North Van so that you, when you go in as a developer, you know exactly what you're getting? Well, I moved forward motions or brought policy forward. And that was more in front of the Vision Council. But some of it got approved. Every once in a while, they'd throw me a bone and I'd get a piece. And it was for flat rate CACs. And they were trying it in the Canby Corridor. But I said, why not throw out the city of Vancouver? Because it's about fairness. But also, the other debate I'd have back and forth with one Vision Vancouver councillor got heated sometimes on the floor of council is I said, look, a developer has a pro forma. They have a bottom line. If they can't meet that bottom line, they can't pay the people at their company. They can't exactly. you know, pay the construction workers. So there's all of the jobs in the workforce, but there's also the buyer and the buyer may be renting that. The buyer may not have uh, two or four homes. Let's not call buyers homeowners. Let's not say that they're all wealthy because they're not. Some of them can't get into the market. And the difference between this developer saying, okay, well, now I have to, you know, buy right. a, a huge amount of public art or put some money into to this fund or that fund, instead of just doing what I wanted to do, which I'd offered up, like build childcare on site. Oh, who needs that, right? Yeah. I guess no families because they're moving out of the city of Vancouver because it's not affordable. Let's not lose the plot here. So I suggested we should do that because then they can build that into their pro forma when they come to the city and sure, staff should say no if they didn't do it right. But it's pretty hard if it's all scheduled out. And I, I really think that that's important because it's about fairness, but it's also, and this is what I'd say the Vision Vancouver Council, I'd say, do you not agree that the end price like the the end of this you know lack of affordability through you know all of the red tape and the money uh 
do you not think it's going to end in, you know, being passed down to the consumer? It gets passed to the buyer. Of course it And then to the renter? And I thought we were here to make sure housing more affordable. Actually, I have to tell you, and and I mean, it's a well-known fact, but I used to hear one real estate developer, who I, I won't name names, talk about, and this is just to quote them, that, you know, CACs were like the crack cocaine, that some of the planners were like, okay, well, there's a piece of land. We're just going to decide we want a new swimming pool, this, that. We don't care what project they're bringing. We don't care what they're asking for. So it became this issue where instead of saying, like laying everything out on the table and saying this is what we want to do, I could see developers were holding a little closer to their vest. What did they have to do? You know, who were the favorite children? Right. You know, and and I saw a lot of business leave the city of Vancouver. And in fact, the nonprofit that I work with, uh, you know, also, you know, mentioned that we don't do a lot of work in the city of Vancouver. So I don't have to conflict out a lot because the truth is, is the housing that I provide for people, most of them need accessible housing, like they're quadriplegics or paraplegics. Imagine needing rent at $375 a month and needing accessible housing. It, I mean, in Vancouver, it's almost impossible. Them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Melissa, you've just brought up a really, uh, a point that I wanted to highlight, which is w- whenever prices go up, some of that gets eaten up by the wholesaler, some of it gets re- eaten up by the retailer, but it's always the consumer that pays the most. And so if the cost to build in the city of Vancouver is 20 or 30% higher than the cost to build the same project in Burnaby or North Vancouver, people are going to pay more in the city. And if it's a result of the bureaucracy and the red tape in the city of Vancouver, using Ken Sims' quote from yesterday, it's a self-inflicted wound. You know, like it's something that could be fixed internally, and it's not. Not for the next 16 months, it can't. Well, that's a good point. (laughs) So we talked about CACs. Um, We've talked about the fact that you've got um, sort of this arbitrary decisions. The other thing that I've heard from these developers is they can't get any engagement with or there's no engagement with city council. Maybe there is with you. I don't know. But the feedback I got is way before these developers get deep into a project in North Vancouver, there are a number of city councillors in North Vancouver. I don't know who they are. You'll know who they are that you can call up. And you can kind of feel the idea like, hey, Melissa, I, I just bought this land or we're going to we're going to put a bid in to buy this property. This is what we're thinking. Here's a kind of template. Is it in line with what the city's plans are? Is it in line with what you think council would approve? Are we on the right track? Which to me seems a little logical. Like what? But what they what these developers have told me is it's a complete black box with, with council and staff. You basically have to go do a pro- all your work up front. You get all your engineering work, your environmental work, everything gets done. You bring it to council. It's got to be basically locked down, bulletproof, with the hope that they approve it. And then even at that, it's completely arbitrary. Whether and you mentioned uh, before, Amanda, about whether it's you know you can have two projects that are identical. They get submitted to City of Vancouver one month apart from each other. One gets approved, one doesn't. I kind of rambled on a bit there, but let's go back to the sorry. Let's go back to the North Vancouver example. The feedback I got is these developers can go to city councilors at other municipalities and get a little bit of feedback to see if they're on the right track. Apparently, they can't do that here. 
I, I speak to a number of uh, real estate developers okay. and applicants, so builders, uh, people in the industry. Uh, sometimes it's the architect who will come to me. Yeah. Uh, and a number of my colleagues will. I can't speak for every counselor, but often we go by caucus, right? And, you know, at our at our council, like, there's no government. There's no amount of counselors that can make a decision. Like before, you know, when I was in opposition, I knew my role and it was to question what was being done because whatever was decided in the mayor's office would just be walked down and they had the votes to do it except when they forgot and they couldn't count to eight and somebody was sick and then I could count to eight. So sometimes I did make a difference those days, but but usually um, now we just kind of all have to work our way through it. It can, it all depends, and you don't really always see the same voting lines. So I can understand how uh, developers are apprehensive. Now there are very strict rules with public hearing. After a project is referred, so we've decided it's going to public hearing, I cannot speak to the applicant. It's legal. It's a legal requirement of public hearing. But before that, even the day before it comes to us to be referred, if they want to explain something to me, describe something to me, they can come to me. And if I hear from them, and often one of the questions I'll ask is, so I I don't want to make you apprehensive, but tell me the truth. How is this going? Uh, Maybe our staff, like our staff are really busy. And the truth is, is they are. I mean, one well, like they'll do the work of two or three people so i will i will actually call our staff up and say i think this is really critical this developer we're going to lose this project it is a huge asset to the community yes i'm coming into it with an open mind after it's referred but while i still can speak to that person i will do whatever i can to move heaven and earth to make sure that you know vancouver and our residents see those benefits, not necessarily the re- residents of North Vancouver, because that's for their city council sure. to deal with. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about, st- thank you for that, Melissa. So let's talk about staff for a second. So one of the other th- pieces of feedback I got from these developers is since COVID's been happening and everybody's working from home, all the applications are now online, which you logically you go, well, that should speed things up because now we go, you know, instead of, instead of having a st- get to city hall at eight o'clock in the morning, stand in line and maybe be hours before you maybe get your turn. Before Better you bring your phone. lunch. Bring your lunch, exactly. Now I can submit it online. But now the feedback that I've gotten from this is that the result is this massive black backlog. And I think to myself, the city shouldn't be proud of the fact that they've pivoted with COVID to an online application. It's been an online application like five years ago. And the fact that what made the staff manage be able to manage this better was the fact that people had to line up out your door at eight o'clock in the morning that's not something that anybody should be proud of that's an embarrassment so as my as far as i can see one of the issues here and correct me if i'm wrong is either we don't have staff working efficiently enough they're bogged down with too much red tape or we don't have enough staff any one of those three maybe it's all three about uh, all three but it seems to me like that's one of the big problems now and, and maybe that's why one of these counselors wanted to put this moratorium to let the staff kind of burn through all the projects that are in the pipeline. What are your comments on that? Well, we still haven't cut the red tape, and I think that's the number one okay. piece of this. And as someone who's navigated the process, and I've navigated the process for multi-residential projects with multi-million dollar performance, and I've also navigated it as a, as a homeowner. I mean, I got all of my renovations when I, my husband and I purchased our home five years ago. I had all of Everything was permitted. I had a contractor who, you know, had all of the correct credentials and licensing. The city of Vancouver lost my permits. <laughs> so lost. I, I put the 
in my husband's name. Obviously, I expect no special treatment, but there were some that were lost. And, you know, I, my husband, that's not really his wheelhouse. So he'd be like, what should I do? And I'm just trying to back channel it at home. But it's in his name, last name different than mine. I, I see the frustration. I think one of the things we have to do, though, and here's a really neat example. The city made me as a single family homeowner when I applied for my permits and all of this, and I had to get a DP. So, you know, if you do a bathroom renovation, if it's too fancy, yeah, you need a whole know, development a DP stands permit. stands for development permit. Yeah, in yeah. most municipalities, you just go and pull a building permit. I just need a permit to do my bathroom. No, this is like a whole process. It adds an extra layer, but then the city makes you do a green audit. So the green audit, I think, cost me 1500 bucks. I didn't have to do anything from it. it. Just gave me a report telling me I could get better windows. I could do all of these things. I knew that. As a homeowner, you know that. You know it's going to be better for me to be more energy efficient. But because I bought my home for, for so much money and I came into it late and I'm not complaining, I'm going to have to do a step process here. I can't do it all at once. Can't afford to. So why is the city making me spend $1,500 and all of that time that I could have been renovating my home, going to get a report done that I don't even have to follow the rules or there's no rules that come out of that. So that's just one example. That's like a real real world example yeah, but it's a good of example. some of the red tape we need to cut. If we actually want to be the greenest city, let's not talk about it. Let's do it. Yeah. And time is money. And I think that that's a really good point. Now to our staff, I do think, and this is where I will back them all the way, they are efficient. Here is where I see the bait and switch, and I voted against it before. So I voted against rezoning fees going up. Oh, because we're going to hire more staff. That's what they said, so that it gets it through quicker. And UDI and all the developers support it. And I said, well, before I approve this, I want to know how many more staff you're going to hire and what departments. We haven't worked that out yet. Well, then how could you bring a number to me if you don't know how many more staff you're going to hire? I mean, the number should be based on this is how many more staff we're going to have in each department, each part of development and planning, development, building and licensing. And this is this counselor or council is the exact amount of time we're going to shave off an average project. That's what I wanted to see. I didn't see it. And the development community was on their knees, just like, sure, we'll pay you more money if you'll get it through faster. Two years later, no faster, but they were paying more money each year for their rezonings. That's terrible. Okay, so Melissa, one of the things you kind of touched on, and I want to dive into this, is you mentioned about certain departments being staffed that really should be a provincial jurisdiction, not a municipal one, and that maybe if we took those responsibilities and passed back over to the province, we could reallocate those resources in departments like the Development Building Department, whatever you call that department that approves all these projects. Can you speak to what some of these departments are? Well, I think it's more when we look at initiatives. So we'll layer on initiatives and, and some of the initiatives, uh, uh, hey, I, I'm guilty of it too. I decided we should have weddings at City Hall. I thought that was kind of a cool thing to do. Also, actually thought it might be more affordable for people living in, in the city, but that's not something that I think's out out there. That being said, I was a little surprised to see on Twitter that the city of Vancouver was teaching people that they could adopt rats from the city of Vancouver. Yeah, what the heck that is that we about? Are going to pro that, that, that apparently we're not only going to adopt them out, but it's a, only a $5 adoption fee. And we were going to communicate. Our communications department is communicating to people that they can use a rat toilet. 
So I saw nothing that. against I just, rats. But I'm sure they're great pets. I don't have one personally. I know people who do have rats. This is rats. an epic waste of taxpayer dollars. I just didn't think that that was something that I was elected so, to do at the city. So of who's who who's who's running the zoo here? Like like I don't understand. How does this stuff happen? I mean, surely I know you. I maybe maybe you maybe you you don't feel comfortable saying this, but I'm going to say to me this is a staffing issue, and it starts at the top, right? I mean, maybe because you guys are there as council and mayor to provide guidance and vision. Is that a fair statement? You're yes. not there to run the day-to-day -day operations, right? No, but if, so I, if not... I was gonna talk to you about yeah. what we should do, maybe we should ask the SPCA to take the rats and let them do their thing. Sure. So I'm not trying to say that our animal control people, that's totally a core service. Development buildings and licensing, that's a core service. Who, who's Those approving, are the things we need to fund. I saw that, I saw that Twitter thing, advertising adopt a rat. Still haven't found out if we're recovering our costs on this $5 <laughs> per, per animal. But who's approving this stuff? I mean, seriously, this doesn't make any sense to me. No, and that was not a big enough issue to come to council. I would have remembered it. Trust me, that's why I saw it on Twitter. I was a bit surprised. I also, I also got questions from people like, you know, what's the city's liability issues? Are they tested for rabies? Is there a return policy? I actually, when I first saw it, Melissa, I actually thought it was a joke. I was like, this is like an April Fool's joke that's come too late. Let's, to, to wrap up the yeah. development, because we're some, yeah. some other topics I want to talk about here. Um, one of the observations that, that one of the developers um, had was that because the risk of de developing in Vancouver is so high now, and they, they equated it to basically there were, um, there were two big factors. One of them was the cost of real estate, which can't be controlled by the city, really. It's a, it's a factor of the market. Mm -hmm. But when you combine the cost of buying a piece of land, combined with the longevity of having to, like the, the mm -hmm. timeline, like they're, they're talking, they're saying to me, Andrew, if I go to buy a property in April of 2021, and it's a real estate develop, like it's a residential development project. I have to be ready to hold that, like have that capital invested and, and take risk on how much that project project's gonna sell for or get rented out at going all the way out to 2027, like six years. Like that, because they've got projects that are finally being done now that they'd started six years ago. And it's not because they're kind of sitting back and like taking their time. It's because of the, red tape that you spoke about with the city of Vancouver. Or longer, look at Little Mountain. It's been sitting there and I like to use that as an example, if you don't right. mind me saying, sure. a decade. Right. So how how affordable was that housing a decade ago if it was built and how sure. affordable is it today? I like to use that scale That's to a really good point. measure it. So what this person said to me was, what this ends up doing is it, it basically not only discourages some developers who can afford but choose not to develop in Vancouver, but it also eliminates all the small developers and you end up having just the big institutions develop. Those are the ones with the deep pockets. Those are also the ones that are going to likely try and generate the highest profit possible, passing on the highest cost to the consumer. And as a result, you have only massive projects coming to the table with big profit margins and things that um, might not necessarily be good for the community because we do need small developers that do the single family homes that do the sort of, you know, duplex and quadplex or whatever you want to call it. Or nonprofits. Some or of them non are developers. Bingo. Do you have any thoughts or comments around that statement? Well, I do. I think that first of all, I am going to name a name here and I'm going to call him out because he did something pretty awesome. 
it was during the last election, and he was working with the Rental Advisory Committee at the City of Vancouver uh, that advises the city on whether or not we have enough rental. Also, you know, old rental stock that needs to be replaced because eventually, as I asked one of, you know, uh, I ask it often at public hearings, like, okay, so when should we decide that finally this life of this building's over? It's not seismically sound. You wouldn't want your parents living there. Or your kids living there. Right. Like, when is Good that question. okay? Because yeah. I kind of find the sweet spot about 25 years is when you paid down just enough on it. But also, you know, the maintenance is still good. That's sort of where you'll find it in the industry. But that being said, I think that what we really need to look at is, you know, what does a developer go through? It's kind of like boot camp for city council. And Byron Chard of Chard Developments came in and he hosted this for any candidate who wanted to come, who was running for election. And he walked us through six-story rental, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is my recollection. Uh, And the risk he assumes, uh, his client, which I believe, you know, he used the example of a pension fund. Uh, I think it was a project in the city of North Vancouver he was referencing, but he also has developed in Vancouver. And he said, this is like, this is my bottom line. And he opened the books. Developers don't have to do that. I can see why they wouldn't want to do that, but he did. So there is not a city councilor that sits around that table now, or the mayor. I didn't see the mayor there, but uh, I I saw a number of them there. So they can't claim to say that they've never seen this. Even though I've worked in it, they've seen it. They've heard it. They've been walked through. This is the step, and this is the step. And to those who support the unions, I'm like, excuse me, this is a pension fund. I thought like, like this is how we're supporting people on the other end. Like, let's not lose the plot here. Yeah. So you're saying this big bad developer, well, actually the owner of this rental building is going to be a pension fund. And I thought you support the union. So why don't you support this project again? Can you please tell me? It's going to provide affordable housing. Uh, it's going to increase the density and amount of people who can live here. It's actually any returns are going to go to union workers and people who, sure. uh, you know, are working just to make it by and hope one day that they can retire and what's wrong with that why is that you know why is developer a dirty word so I think what we really need to do if I can you know say I, I had to share that example because I thought it was it was really it showed leadership mm-hmm. of, you know in the industry to say here we'll walk you through it council we're not just coming and complaining and Byron really stepped up and he did an excellent job with the rental advisory committee of walking us through this and they were on board with it and I understand it but I thought it was good I wanted to show up just to see what my colleagues would be hearing too and this was before the election so every candidate had this opportunity so there are good things that council can bring motions to input on that maybe, you know, I know that some of my colleagues have brought excellent motions that I've supported, even if they're not along the same party lines as me. Um, you know, I, I know that Councillor Fry and I are working on motions together, actually. I mean, there's a number of councillors uh, that we do. We work across party lines, so it's not always this, I'm just in my party. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't expect the city of Vancouver to pay for the childcare funding. That's a provincial responsibility. But if we don't build it, they won't come. And I think, or worse than that, they're going to have to leave our city. And that's what's really concerning me. Well said. So when it comes to kind of pushing the province, because the province does the same. They go to the feds asking for money. It's normal that cities then go to the province and say, we need some money. Um, Whose responsibility is that? Is that the mayor's? 
Well, the mayor has the mayor's office, and I, you know, I've I've said this. There's people that it's good that we're transparent. It's good that we're open about our spending. But I think the mayor spent about the same amount on office supplies as I get in my entire budget. Um, so I mean, I actually have this in my notes. City buys expensive Herman Miller chairs, and the mayor has spent half a million dollars on, uh, I guess, his assistance in labor costs. Well, I mean, it, the, the mayor does have mayor two chiefs of, of staff. Money, huh? I'm not saying that they're they're not uh, doing their jobs. It's Is not for me to say that. Is there some foolish spending going on at the city of Vancouver? I think that if I was on the other side of it, I'd like to put myself in the shoes of of the people who elected me to do this. Yeah. And before I was elected, you know, I always went out there and voted. And, and this is why I think people are apathetic and they don't vote because they think, oh, I can't make a difference. And I, yeah. I this person crooked doesn't understand go me. Herman Miller chairs exactly. We're in a pandemic right now. So yeah. I can understand. And I asked staff to look at that. You know, we were read right now. We're doing some redecorating of a lobby. And I said, but nobody can come to City Hall. Why are we redecorating a lobby? So these are the questions so that good. I do ask because I try and put myself good in their you. shoes. The other thing that I did, just you know, a quick example of it last term, and I felt bad, I really did put our staff on the hot seat, was they came back with this, you know, this short-term rental policy. And they said, okay, so you can you can do this if you're a renter. And I said, so if you're a renter, if you're renting a home, you can come to the city and get a policy to short-term rent out the unit. Well, where's the renter living? Well, they're short-term renting out the unit that they rent. Uh, well, they could be a flight attendant. Okay, well, not everybody in the city is a flight attendant. Then I get this. I, I, I looked at it. I wanted to see if it was bulletproof. I try and look at it through the eyes of, you know, the average Vancouver taxpayer, if they even have an extra moment after they make lunch for their kids and do everything they've got to do. And I know they don't watch council meetings. So if they're looking at this policy, I said, I said to our staff, so let me get this straight. If someone had an adult child, could they... Uh, sign a lease agreement for a dollar with their adult child. Their adult child turns around and comes to our, the city and gets a, a license agreement. Yes, but we don't expect people to do that. Well, why not? You have to, you know, take this policy for a test drive yourself before you expect me to approve it. Good so I didn't you. vote for it. But that's just another reason. Again, I think we have to look at instead of saying no, how do we get there? And we heard from people, hey, short term rental might be, the, you know, I have an adult son who comes home from university to pay for that son to go to university. We heard from a speaker, I short term rent out my suite. Well, you should long-term rent it out, another counselor said. Well, then where would my son Sunlit. stay? Yeah, exactly. So I think we really yeah. have to consider putting I like, ourselves I like that in statement. their shoes. I like that statement. Got to take this policy for a test drive before you get it approved. Or a test bike ride. Yeah. I don't know. Or Whatever test we bike do ride, in the yeah. city of Vancouver now. Um, Melissa, as we start to wrap this up, there's been... Um, you've, you've, you're a pretty fiery lady and you've had some fiery dialogue recently on on Twitter. It started off, I think, like a week or two ago with your democracy just died in Vancouver tonight. I like it, by the way. It's it's I can hear the passion in your voice. Um, you've been I'm sure my husband wanted to reel me in that day. He doesn't have Twitter and he's very thankful for that. Um, so you, you've got you've got some people out there in the social media world who love to really you know try and say that you're not a fit for office, this kind of thing. Um, and uh, so what do you what do you have to say? Like, what, what, it's, Can you comment on what it's like as both a female and shall I point out that you're the first millennial to ever be elected to city council? 
Um, you're a mom. You're a, a, a wife of a VPD police officer. You know, there's this whole defund the police movement we've been seeing in North America for the last year and a half, which is in certain jurisdictions, I'm certain are probably well justified. But I got to say, Vancouver has, in my opinion, one of the most diverse, inclusive and compassionate police departments I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot. Not that I've been in trouble or anything, but I just. So can you comment a little bit as we go to wrap this up? What is it like for you, a mom, a, a wife of a police officer, a millennial and a female trying to work in public office? And you're not even getting paid the big bucks. Well, that's a loaded question, but yeah. all I can say is I, like? I can give you my my perspective, yeah. and that is I really feel that it's an honor to do this job, and and you know I'm sure my husband, you know, he th thinks I'm crazy. He's like, uh, for you know, he he understands, and I just wanted to say, you know, let let me say that again. Actually, you know, my husband's really supportive of what I do, and in fact, when I have you know, been in, in, I'm a human being just like anyone else. Uh, that being said, I know, and I'm very fortunate to have women who mentored me, who came before me and who made it a better place for me in politics. And even on the days that I don't want to do it, and I don't want to do it for myself, and I don't think that I deserve it, I have to do it for the women who come after me. And my husband reminds me of that. You know, and I see that every morning when I look at my daughter. Maybe she doesn't want to be a politician. She should be whatever she wants to be. In fact, I'd probably discourage her from doing this, <laughs> just like my dad did. He said, it's going to be tougher for you. It's not going to be easier for you because you I was You don't want elected. her to do it. It's, you should encourage her to do well, it. Well, exactly. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, I think women, and I've, I've, felt, I've felt more comfortable talking about it lately yeah. because I feel like I should. You should. Before... And, and I think I realized this, and so did other women, and I'm not saying, oh, gee, it's, you know, we've just become woke to this and all sharing this, but I think that there is a lot of misconceptions out there, and, it, you know, people feel that it's fine to just hurl insults at people because they're in public office, but then here's the thing. Who do you want to see in public office? And if that was your mom, your brother, your sister, how would you feel if somebody said the things about them? that you perhaps say about me. Yeah, sure. And I guess that's the question well, I'd ask. Well, this is the about. irony is that when someone says, you know, Melissa Diagenova is like unfit for office, she's a liar and she has no morals and she's 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 going to discourage other millennials from wanting to run for office. I think to myself, well, that's kind of ironic cuz I mean, if you're throwing somebody under the bus like that and call them all sorts of names, what would motivate anybody to want to be in well, and that person's never actually spoken to me or met me. So, I mean, I, you know, take it with a grain of salt, right? But I wonder, you know, how would that person, you know, and I didn't ask them this question, but I did say, you know, in response on Twitter, there was, a, you know, a conversation on Twitter. I said in response, I said, you know, I'm not going to call you names. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And it is really important. And I think that, you know, as a woman in politics, I think that, you know, my male colleagues, they get, they also get harassed. We get harassed in a different way. Like, you know, I recently shared this. Uh, Charlie Smith, Georgia Strait, called me up. He was doing a story for International Women's Day. And he said, you know, Melissa, can you tell me, um, you know, what it's like? And I was very guarded, but I thought, you know what? It's time. And one of the different ways is I don't know that one of my male colleagues would have three guys uh, come up to them on the way to their car 
and I was driving to an event. I just met with a, another city councilor last term, and it was right around the time of the cannabis public hearing, so cannabis wasn't legal. And I was just showing how, hey, by allowing this to go on in our city, we won't give this nice little business owner a license over here who has a restaurant, uh, but we're just gonna turn a blind eye while this cannabis dispensary that's getting supplied by a gang or organized crime continues to do business and makes money in our city. And what does that say about our leadership? So I was approached um, by three men and one of them exposed themselves to me. And I found out later from the Vancouver police who, you know, I did, at first I was very shocked, but I did call it in and did all of the appropriate things. And they said to me, Melissa, we, we think that this was targeted and it was meant to scare you. I mean, I honestly wouldn't have gotten the message unless the VPD told me because nobody had a sign up saying, you know, this is about cannabis. But, I, you know, I hear it from others who I talk to and I encourage other women to run. And, you know, there have been federal politicians uh, who, I mean, who have said it. It takes three, four, five, sometimes 10 times more for a woman to be asked to run than a man. They feel they're less qualified. So what service are we doing to women to allow this behavior to go on? You know, we talk about toxic masculinity and I'm not blaming it at all on men. I think it's, it's my job, it's everyone's job to make sure that, you know, for men, I hope there are allies for women that were paving the way for other women. So, you know, I love what I do. I hope that I'm making a positive difference. I know that I might not agree with my colleagues. I know that they wake up in the morning and it might be a different path, but we're all trying to make a positive difference in the city of Vancouver. And I hope that people know that, you know, I don't take it lightly that, uh, you know, the voters of Vancouver are my boss. I try and put myself in their shoes every day. I am in their shoes. When I finally get through an 18-hour city council meeting, it's usually not still light outside. But on the days that I can have with my daughter, you know, it's about making the city a better place for her. And I see that as an honor that they've allowed me to do that for so long. And yes, I mean, at this point, I will be running for council again. Um, you know, never say never to other opportunities. And, and, you know, it's up to the citizens of Vancouver. And for those people who are listening today, thank you. You might not listen to council meetings, but please do. And, and you know, know that, like, I ran on a platform to make this a more family-friendly Vancouver. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be fun. It should. But, you know, this is where we really need to look at this work-life balance. And people can't stop working if we don't try and make our city more affordable for them. So that's what I'm going to keep trying to do. Good for you. Well said. And uh, to, to finish this off, you just pointed out the last point I wanted to make, which is that you are going to run for city council again. You're not going to run for mayor? My intention right now is to run for city council. Yes. Okay. And, and uh, anything and, else I'd so, have to discuss with my husband, but I am, now, I am 100% in for running for city council next time. Well, I should you. point out you not only uh, in your first term were the only non-incumbent that got elected. Um, I'm sure you know the stat. Um, but in the second term, you had the third number most votes out of all city council. Did you know that? I did know that. Okay. And and actually, I, I really enjoyed politics and I never thought I'd end up on this side. I went yeah. from the back room to the ballot. That's what I call it. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I worked on federal campaigns. I worked on provincial campaigns. I worked on uh, municipal campaigns. One of my first jobs was on Sam Sullivan's campaign. Really? I was, I was in I had, the university. We had Sam in here. Uh, we, I interviewed Sam uh, during the provincial election. So I was, I was 20. Guy. 
And yeah. we were the little campaign that couldn't. He hired me before Christy decided to run the nomination against. Yeah. We had a tiny little campaign team, but we won by a couple of votes at nomination. He won the mayoralty seat. Uh, and the four pillars policy, I just want to put in a plug for why I chose the NPA. Yeah. You know, Philip I mean, Owen, I had a chance to really know him, and he's somebody I consider a mentor. Uh, you know, I, I think that this is the way we... It needs to be compassionate, but all four pillars are important. You can't operate without one. They hold each other up. Can you remind up. us what the four pillars are? The four pillars, uh, you know, it, it was a very provocative plan when it came forward, but it's looking at prevention, it's looking at treatment, it's looking at harm reduction, and it's looking at enforcement. And each of those pillars, they, they work together. And, you know, Vancouver was one of the first municipalities to have a safe injection site. So, I, you know, I do support that. Uh, I know we're not going to get too, too deep into the overdose crisis and all of that, but that's what inspired me to run for the MPA. See, there's fiscal responsibility, but at the same time, there's compassion mm -hmm. and looking at how does this actually affect people's lives? You know, um, homeowners, renters, people who are vulnerable in our city. And, you know, I think that that's why, uh, you know, for the parts of the budget that I do vote on, I think it is important now more than ever to support the police when we look at sort of the increase in violence, the increase in anti-Asian um, you know, hate crimes and racism. And, and I think that it's really important that we just have, we, we look at public safety as that's just a human right, a basic right. One of the other things I was really proud about was free parking for veterans. That's where I think maybe we should. Was that your initiative? I'm, yes, yeah. Good for you. So we should pick up, you know, good. sometimes we do need to pick up the check for, for yeah. others, but not all the time. Andrew. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one. I didn't know that you, you were the one that brought that forward. I saw that. That was, that, that was pretty nice. That was pretty good. So you're going to run next year. Uh, are you going to run under the MPA still? I am committed to uh, the nonpartisan association. Yeah. Um, I think I, I outlined some of the reasons there. But I also think that, you know, um, I'm looking forward to the AGM. We all, we may have, we may see different paths When's on how we get there. When's the last time the NPA there? had an AGM? It was a couple of years ago. And that being said, I... Doesn't that seem odd to you? It, I mean, it does. That being said, I, I've seen a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in my time in politics, it's kind of like a reality TV show sometimes. But here's... Will there the, be one before the next election? I, I do believe there there is, and I'm committed to working towards that. And I'm going to keep doing that because here's the thing. I understand that some of the board directors at the NPA, you know, I don't agree with their comments. I don't agree with what they've said. Um, but... I think it's up to the membership. It's not for me to go in there and decide who should be there. Sure. It's for our membership, and that's what democracy is. So I think that that's really important. And I also feel that I have to hold myself to a higher standard as a millennial, as you mentioned, as the first millennial. I want you know younger people in the city of Vancouver who don't have time. I mean, because they're working two jobs or, you know, ushering kids around if they can afford to have kids. As some of them tell me that means a two bedroom condo or my kid sleeps in the closet or whatever that means. Um, I want to be someone that they can see, you know, is advocating for them up at City Hall and knows the struggles and the issues. Uh, I'm not saying all young people are the same or all millennials. I don't feel young. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people out there who are younger than me, but I, I think that really we need a diverse city council. We need people who represent everyone um, at the table. And that's why, although sometimes democracy is messy, it's necessary.